You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ for conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together, so let's get to it. This week's topic, Bet Sizing Part 2, revisiting the notion of multi-way pots and introducing a post-flop bet sizing framework. Hey Dell, how's it going this week? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm trying to take it easy. I got a lot of stuff going on in life, both professional, poker-related, podcast-related. I think we'll talk about that in a minute. And just home-related. So I'm trying to take it easy. I'm not doing too much. Just living life. This is probably the highlight of my weekend, in fact, is recording this podcast. Pretty good. How about you? What's new with you? I would say that this is not quite the highlight of my weekend. The highlight of my weekend is seeing my wife's beautiful face. But you come real close, BJ. You're you're a handsome man, just not oh, quite as gosh. just not quite as attractive. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to make it that. <laughs> Moving on. All right. We had an exciting week this week here at The Blind Stealing the Blinds. You posted our podcast to Twitter and you hashtagged Solve for Why on it because we had mentioned pain threshold and we had mentioned a couple other things that we felt was Solve for Why deserved credit for because of their material. And uh, Matt Berkey responded to us. Pretty good stuff. He didn't just respond. He responded with six posts. And I love how he concluded it. Thank you for attending my TED Talk. Sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> you did give me permission to be a little bit of a fanboy, so I'm going to do a little bit of it right now. Just a little bit. For our listeners, it's important to understand that BJ actually doesn't really follow a lot of people in poker. Wow. Embarrassing. I know. It's true. The other day, I wake up and I go into a, a morning meeting, and there I've got a text from BJ that says, Oh my God, Matt Berkey listened to our podcast. So that gives us an idea of the level of what Matt Berkey is, that BJ Marshall knows who Matt Berkey is. So we been a little overwhelmed just a little bit with the idea that he took time to listen to our podcast and give us feedback. Well, let me let me add one thing. We are willing to be corrected. We ought to be willing to learn. The fact that someone took time out of their day, point out some inaccuracies, not just say you got this wrong or you didn't get this exactly right, but let's go into more detail about the fundamentals behind these concepts to help you understand where you were wrong and where you could change your thinking. That goes a long way. Just telling someone they're wrong doesn't serve any purpose. To help that person understand where they were wrong goes a long way. But what really strikes me is that Matt Berkey understands we're students of the game, we're producing this for students of the game, we're not pros, and he is intensely aware of the training that people need and he is willing to help anybody understand the concepts and get better. And that kind of leads us to some error correction that we had. Given the conversation, it caused us to go back and reevaluate our stance on Heads Up Poker from last week. So the first 10 or 15 minutes of this episode is going to be a revisit of equity and EV relative to that conversation we had earlier, specifically about the example of aces, but also bringing in other examples because Dell actually did a lot of homework to really drive it home. The reason why we're doing this error correction is one, we want to get better and we want to help our listeners get better. But two, we're talking about bet sizing by each street. We did an episode a few weeks ago about the story of the hand and the myth of pre and post-flop play. 
The actions we take pre-flop influence the actions we take on the flop, which also influence those actions we take on the turn and the river. You can't divorce one street from the other street. So the fact that we're kind of revisiting this pre-flop notion actually has a lot of merit when you consider future streets because of the cascading effect that each decision has on subsequent streets. So we're going to have some error correction. Bear with us. We did mention how this is going to be a multi-part series. After we cover the error correction, we're going to introduce a framework to help you understand bet sizing on the flop. We're only going to introduce the framework. There's a lot to unpack here, and we're going to unpack that in future episodes. So in later episodes, you'll get to some more tools, some more exercises, and some more of the fundamental theory behind the bet sizing. And then those tools will help you bridge that gap between the theory and the application. So with that, take it away, Dell or back and forth with Matt on Twitter made me rethink the notion that multi-way pots are bad. I did ask a couple questions. He responded to them. I had a longer conversation with Dominic Ania and Jordan Sweet. They're both coaches at School of Cards, and they helped me hash out a lot of my biases against multi-way pots and how to look at it a little differently. It's not necessarily that they're bad. They have advantages and disadvantages. In last episode, what we used for an example, we used ace-ace going multi-way. So one of the things I want to correct here is that we had said when it gets to four ways that aces equity drops down of around 48%. This is actually not true. I did a couple of ranges that I'm going to get into now. That range drops to around 60%. So it's still a huge favorite. And on top of that, it's not just enough to say that if we go multi-way that that equity drops to a certain point, it's going to vary based on the ranges it's facing. So against certain ranges, it'll do a little better than 60%. Against other ranges, it might do a little worse than 60%. And it's not possible for me to spend doing every single possible range that it can face going four ways. So for this episode, we're going to talk about the 60% because that's the material I use. Any other corrections we want to add? Well, I think there's an interesting point between maximizing EV and over-realizing one's equity. The fact that aces heads up wins more often, but may win a smaller pot relative to it going three-way or even four-way. The calculus really comes into how often will aces win versus how large the size of the pot will be. If you're heads up and you win 84% of the time and the pot's 100 bucks, that's great. You made like $34 profit because take your $50 out of it, boom, you get your $34 profit. If you do that same thing multi-way, let's say three or four way, you could actually end up winning $50, $60, $70 in a multi-way pot. Now the question is, will you win as often? Probably not. But when you do win, you'll end up winning more money. It's almost like the most interesting man in the world. You know those Dos Equis commercials? <laughs> I don't win the pot all the time, but when I do, I win more money. I'm going to have to turn that into a meme. I got my work in front of me here, and I'm actually going to talk about just what you said. When we go to that ace-ace and we talk about what you just said, like, you're right, heads up against a 20% range, we can expect $34 profit per hand. And that's based on this very simple notion that the bets are made and then no more bets are made and we get to see all the streets and get to showdown. 
Obviously, that's not the way poker is played, but that is the way we're going to do this discussion because this should give you an idea of the potential of going multi-way with a hand like Ace-Ace. So when we add another range in, like I had a 20% range when I was doing this, and then I added in, by the way, all the numbers I got here come from Poker Cruncher. I want to state that before I go any further. I use Poker Cruncher, I use Flopzilla, and I use Equilab. Those are the three things I use all the time. And at the time I was doing this, I had Poker Cruncher on my phone, and that's where I got these numbers. So I added in a 25% range, and I did that because my first range I added was 20%, and I was assuming that the second caller could definitely call a little wide. Obviously, these are arbitrary numbers I'm picking because in your game, you might be facing somebody who's doing a 30% range or a 40% range or somebody who's going to play any two cards because there's already other people in the pot. You have to take those in consideration, but the numbers are pretty much going to be fairly true. So with that extra range put in there, we're now talking about a $150 pot that ACA still has 73% equity against. And what that breaks down to is winning $109.50 on average or a profit of $59.50 per hand. That's an extra $25 profit per hand. That's like a couple bowls of Chipotle right there. Right. Yeah, right. It's a lot of Starbucks coffee, I can tell you that. <laughs> At least two. Yes. <laughs> Then I decided, well, let's add another one. And when we usually get to a third person calling us, that range gets really wide. So I added a 50% range. So now we got three callers. Ace Ace Equity now is down to 64%, but our pot is $200 and Ace Ace is winning $128 on average or a profit of $78 per hand. So now we're up to $44 over that original heads up if we were to see every card, if we always get to showdown. So obviously that's not what happens. We start to see the equity dwindling, but our EV is rising with each person we add in. Although our equity is dwindling, our EV is rising. And the thing about that that's important to remember is equity doesn't put money in our pockets. That's what EV does, because equity has to be realized in order to put money in our pockets. And if it's being realized, well, now we're talking about expected value. It's the expected value of a hand that puts money in our pockets. So that was one of the things that made me think, well, gee, multi-way isn't always bad. Do we want to get multi-way instead of heads up? I'd have to say this comes to the most overused answer in poker. And you said it's really the most overused answer in life. And the answer is it depends because ace-ace is a very strong hand and it does well in multi-way pots. But if we take that other favorite hand I like to talk about because I think it makes a good opposing example and we can look at 7-6 suited against that 20% range, 7-6 suited only has 36% equity. It's not a favorite, but we don't mind that heads up. The reason we don't mind not being a favorite with 7-6 suited heads up is because we're going to that flop with an uncapped range and we have a lot of ways to win other than just hitting a hand. I don't mind that my 7-6 suited isn't going to be a favorite against most people's range going there. In fact, I have a tendency to three bet it because I'm going to win a lot of pots three and then I'm going to have the ability to represent all sorts of things post-flop, plus it's going to hit draws, which is going to give me more playability going forward. Problem with that is we have to be real cautious with it because when we add in that 25% range, our equity drops to 30%, and we're against a range that has 37% equity and another one that has 34% equity. And what happens is we have a whole lot less ways to win because now we got to get two players to fold if we don't hit a hand. By the time we add in that 50% range, the only hand range we end up ahead again is the 50% range, and we're already down to 23% equity. So there's a huge difference between ace-ace and seven-six going multi-way. 
Is it bad to go multi-way with 7.6? I'm not going to say it's bad to. In fact, that was one of the things that Jordan Sweet said was there's really nothing bad in poker. What determines our results is how we play in that situation. My biggest part of this was when I was talking with them was how we lose the ability to leverage fold equity. We go in there and now we're multi-way. We're just not going to get as many folds. There's just not as many bluffs to be had. Whereas you go heads up and you get a static flop, it's pretty easy to take and win a lot of hands just by continuation betting. Yes, multi-way can be better EV for strong hands or if we play them well. The thing is, that's what's going to happen. And, and this is interesting because now I'm also going to give Steve Catterson, chip extractor, a little credit because he always says this. When we go into those multi-way pots, we're going to be leaning into our equity more, which I know is funny because we've just said that EV is what we're looking at in these multi-way pots as opposed to equity. But when we get there, we're going to have to have a hand more often. So we're going to be leaning into our equity more often. There's going to be a lot more cautious in multi-way pots. I think the last thing I'll say about it was one of the things that concerned me in talking about multi-way pots was whether or not a person's bankroll could handle it because there's going to be a higher degree of variance. So that means you could go more hands without realizing your natural equity within the hand. So you could get a greater degree of variance. If you don't have a really strong bankroll that can handle it, maybe you want to try to avoid those multi-ways. I really don't know. I'm not going to pretend I do know, but it was just a thought. you have anything to add, BJ? I do. Last year during COVID, you and a couple others, mostly you, had chastised me for my views on only winning the blinds with ace-ace. I played a hand and I won three bucks. I was kind of bummed about that. Like, what's the deal? I got like the best starting hand in poker and all I could do was win three bucks. I raised under the gun, everyone folded, the blinds folded, and I picked up three bucks. And you said, you know what? You should be happy with that because you over-realized your equity there. Aces heads up have like 80 something percent equity. You just won. You got a hundred percent equity, but I wasn't happy. And it wasn't until this concept that I realized why. I don't really care about maximizing or over-realizing my equity. I care about maximizing my EV. And the fact that diminishing equity going heads up doesn't necessarily impact my ability to maximize my EV actually encourages me. If I go heads up with aces, fine. I'm happy with that. If I go three or four away the aces, I'm no longer as skeptical as I was before. I'm no longer thinking, oh dear, I have to play protective. Will my aces get cracked? Who knows? Let's kind of play cautiously. Instead of finding a way to maximize the EV of a multi-way pot with aces or seven six suited or whatever, I'm just using that as the example. The fact that now I have a model to follow to differentiate between maximizing or over-realizing my equity and maximizing my EV is going to help me going forward. One of the things I want to say about the notion of ace-ace uh, pre-flop, because you brought it up and I want to mention, I want to make sure everyone understands. When I said that if you bet your aces pre-flop and everybody folds and all you win is the blinds, that you should be happy you're over-realizing your equity. There's truth to that. You actually are over-realizing your equity. You want a 100% of the pot. Nobody wants everybody to fold. I don't want everybody to fold. 
but it's a mindset trick. So I don't want everybody going out thinking that I'm talking about it being max EV. Max EV for us, if we have aces, is our opponent shoving and we get to call and we get to win 84% of a huge pop all the time. That would be max. That's what we'd love. That's not going to happen. Sometimes you're going to open raise and everybody's going to fold and you can choose to be annoyed over it or you can at least take the one little bit of positive out of it, which is, well, at least I overrealized my equity. <laughs> you know? yeah. Okay. I got the consolation prize. Like back in the 80s, right. you didn't win, but here's the home version of our game. Right. Yeah. So I don't want people thinking that I think it's a great thing when people fold when you had aces because I get annoyed too. I grab that one last little bit that makes me go, oh, okay, good. <laughs> so. Do we want to move on to flop bet sizing? Sure, sure. We can go ahead. Now, just to recap, the reason we're doing this series on bet sizing is because we've realized the problem most people have in not knowing how much to bet. The core tenant is that we're trying to maximize our EV. Side note, if you over-realize your equity, that's a nice consolation prize. You can at least still be happy with that and give yourself a nice mental boost. <laughs> Now that we're on the flop and we've seen the first three community cards, we have like 60% of the information already out there. What framework can we give people as a solution to approach this concept of maximizing their EV? That framework to introduce for understanding how to maximize your EV, I think comes down to a few things. It's understanding who the pre-flop aggressor is. That's important because one of you is capped, one of you is not capped, and the one who is uncapped has the ability to represent a wider range, the entirety of your range, in fact. The second idea is understanding who has the range advantage on that flop. Generally speaking, you don't want to bet into someone else's range advantage because they can make your life miserable. Just think about the times where you've bet into a wet or highly coordinated board and they raised you. Do you remember how that struck terror in your hearts and your souls? That's exactly what I'm talking about here. The third thing is understanding the incentive of our range. Do we want to play offensively or defensively? Do we want to take the tact of equity realization or equity denial? Either maximize our equity or minimize the equity our opponents can extract from us. So what I want to do, I think that's a lot to unpack. So what I want to do is why don't we unpack that framework one step at a time? So what was the first part of that framework again? All right. So the first part of that framework is understanding who the preflop aggressor is. And that's important because we want to make sure we understand who's capped and who's not. If we're the pre-flop aggressor, we are going into the flop with an uncapped range. That means we could have the totality of our range in play. You've probably tried to range your opponents. You think they never have queens plus, they never have ace-king suited, they never have ace-queen suited. And the reason you might think that is because knowing your opponent, that opponent would likely have three bet you. The fact that they didn't means their range is capped. Right. The most advantageous situation in poker is to be able to apply pressure with a uncapped range on a board that favors that uncapped range against a capped range. The reason that's so important to determine who the preflop aggressor is, who has the uncapped range, is because when we go to the next part of this, when we talk about flop textures, we're looking at we have so many more flops that are going to benefit 
the preflop aggressor. Now, this gets reduced if things start to happen a certain way. Like if you have an open razor and a collar, it's pretty easy. One person definitely has a cap range. The other person definitely has an uncap range. And the preflop opener definitely has a huge advantage here. Well, now when we get into a three bet and a call, the three better still has the uncap range. He still has the advantage, but that advantage is going to be smaller. And if we go to four bet, the higher we go with these bets, the closer to the same range we're getting. The greater amount of aggression preflop between two players, the closer those ranges are going to mirror each other. When you get a static flop, which means the person who's ahead now is most likely going to be ahead come the river. It's not always that they're ahead. It's most likely to be ahead. That is a huge advantage to somebody with an uncapped range. That flop favors them. Even if you go into more of a flop that hits both ranges, then that preflop aggressor with his uncapped range is going to have more topside equity and therefore going to have a huge advantage. There's more flops that are advantageous to the preflop aggressor. They get to take in win more bluffs. They get to take in attack more lines because of that. So very important to be able to, one, go to that flop being the preflop aggressor with an uncapped range, and then two, being able to recognize who has range advantage, which is basically reading that board and saying who hit that board harder. Now, there's going to be times when the capped range hits it harder, and that's going to change from opponent to opponent because your opponent's range is going to vary some. It's not like it's always be all, end all this way. It depends on your opponent's range. When we look at that and we see like a monotone connected board, these are boards that are not great for the preflop aggressor to bet into. It's okay sometimes to look at these boards and say, this really smashed my opponent's range here. I'm going to check it because they're calling behind with more connectors. They're calling behind with more ASEX suited. It's okay to check those. On the opposite side of that, when we get those boards and we smash them, it's okay to bet really large. Those are the flops that we're going to get paid when we smash them because our opponent is more likely to hit something that they're going to be continuing with. The third part of the framework is understanding the incentives of our range. And this really gets to what you were talking about with the range advantage. We don't want to be betting into someone else's range advantage because they could put us to a tough decision by, by raising us or applying counter aggression. So do we want to take a defensive line where we try to deny their equity? Or do we take an offensive line where we try to maximize our equity. And there are two main concepts here that I find fascinating that get to how we maximize our EV or minimize the EV they get from us. And those two concepts are the minimum defense frequency and auto profiting. And they're two sides of the same coin. Essentially, depending on how much you bet, if your opponent folds more often than they ought to, you're auto profiting. The amount of time that you ought not to fold is the minimum defense frequency. Here's a concrete example. Let's say I bet pot. That means you're getting two to one odds on your money. If you're getting two to one odds and you fold more than 33% of the time, the opponent auto profits. Your minimum defense frequency is directly mathematically tied to the odds that you're getting from the price your opponent is giving you. So let's use a different example. Someone bets half pot. That means you're getting three to one odds on your money. That means if you are folding more than 25% of the time, your opponent is auto profiting. You can use this to your benefit by figuring out how much or how little you want to bet and then putting your opponent's 
to those decisions. Because if you know that your opponent is too turn honest or too flop honest and they fold more often than they ought to, you can exploit their erroneous minimum defense frequency to your own gain. Yeah, that's a very deep subject. And honestly, the funny part about this is you broke it down to two concepts, but I think there's more here. This is one of the problems with determining bet sizing once we get to the flop and why it's still not solved because it goes so much deeper because while we're talking about our range incentives, everything you just said was true and it's gold. And if you can put that into practice, it's going to help you make more money. But it even goes further than that because different portions of our range are going to have different incentives. There's going to be portions of our range where it's not about minimum defense frequency. It's not about equity denial. It's not about equity. Well, it'll be a little bit about equity realization. Some of the portions of our range are literally just going to want to get to the next street. We're going to have a bet sizing that's determined on what's the best way I can push my equity through to the next street and then take the next step to see if the board runs out favorable, pushing it to the next street and then pushing it to the river. Some of our range, the incentive is going to be to bail. Like on a static flop, we might take that bet, but then when we get called, we're done. That's the incentive of the range. Okay. They didn't fold. We've got nothing here. And they're the type of player that's only going to call with certain things. It gets so complex when it gets to the flop. There are so many different lines and so many different incentives that we need to apply. And the better you get at it, the better you get at post-flop play. I love the way you broke down the minimum defense frequency. And gosh, if that were just it, it would be really simple, wouldn't it? It would. Unfortunately, that's not it. That's probably going to be it for this episode, though. We're going to have to come back next week to talk more about these concepts and dig deeper into this rabbit hole because there's a lot more to get at. There's a lot more goodness to come. Like Dell mentioned, this isn't solved. There's a huge decision tree. How do we push our decisions that we make pre-flop into the flop? And then how do we push those decisions through to the turn and the river? All the while keeping in mind, how do we maximize our EV? And sometimes it's by bailing out of the hand. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people complain that ace-king suited is so hard to play. And the reason it's so hard to play is because they have ace-king spades and the flop is like rainbow, not a single spade. Nothing connects with any of the Broadway cards at all. And they just barrel, barrel, barrel. And then they complain while they got beat. Because you played the hand wrong. Maybe if we help people understand the incentives of their ranges in the coming weeks, they won't complain so much because they won't do that so much. I want them to keep playing that way against me, BJ. I yes, just don't yes. want them to keep... play that against others. Yeah. Right, right, right. Do that against <laughs> us. If you see us at your table, feel free to do that. Yeah. I want everybody to be patient. We are going to get to a point where we are going to boil down some answers on how much to bet on the flop. The reality is, though, that the answer is going to be painful because the answer is going to be a lot of times it depends. This is a good start. We've got a framework here that we can look at to start to determine what those bet sizes are going to be. And if you're patient and you listen one or two more weeks, we should have some things that will help us play better and our listeners play better. But don't just listen for those one or two weeks. <laughs> go back. If you're joining us new, go back, listen to our first episodes, go through the entire archive. If you're joining us new, welcome and please stay with us. We're going to be here for the long haul. Somebody please share our podcast with somebody in different countries. Right now we've got Germany, Belgium, Spain, France. I want to be as global as possible. If somebody could share us in Antarctica, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Dell, thanks a lot. This is going to be one heck of a ride. I'm looking forward to doing it with you. All right. Awesome. Thanks a lot, PJ. All right. And until next week, this is The Blind Stealing the Blinds. Like what you heard? 
head over to anchor.fm slash the blind stealing the blind to continue the conversation and join us on the socials. While you're there, you can also support the show. One blind per month is all we ask.